Gary Workham. And she's Jill Hughes. Join us for the untold stories of Shadow Gallery. All right, and welcome back to Shadow Gallery, the untold stories. We're here on episode two. Yeah, episode two. This is great. And episode one was fun to get a sense of the history. Now I think we can probably jump into the product that resulted from the history. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm excited to to hear about the individual songs. So we'll get Brent and Carl in here and we'll ask them. I mean, I, I see for me, it was very interesting because I was not part of the recording process or the writing process for that first album at all. So I kind of came in after they were done. But I was a big fan of it. Big fan of that record. So I have a question for you, Gary. Did you hear about Shadow Gallery before they asked you to join the band? Like, did you know about that album? Well, I have an awkward story, I suppose. I was in a band with a guy named Chris Green, who lived in Palmerton, which is where Chris Ingalls and Ron Evans and uh, you know some of the guys were from. And we got together, and I just got a piano. I remember this. I had a piano for about a year. So I was probably 20, 21. And he had a cassette of Shadow Gallery's song, Dance of Fools, maybe more than that. And he's like, you got to hear this. I think you'll love the keyboard player. And I was like, okay. And I'm not one to go, yeah, let's sit down and listen to a couple hours of music. And that'll be fun. I'd rather just start making music than listen to it. But I remember I listened to Dance of Fools. Uh, This was probably two years before I joined the band or right when they finished doing a demo of it. And I was like, wow. And I was actually most impressed with the keyboard playing. I, I was playing with a lot of talented people, but I hadn't heard somebody play guitar like that or keyboards like that. So it was it was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Who would have known all that talent was in a coal mining region? Yeah. So I guess they, they went on and finished that record. And when I finally met up with them, the only song I knew was Dance of Fools. And here we are today. So are you um, excited to learn about more about the album that you weren't on? Yeah, I mean, I, I had gotten bits and pieces from the band. I was, um, <laughs> I found it funny to to know that they used like so little equipment. You know, they were a band that had a small amount of equipment as I did. Like they owned a microphone and a drum machine and uh, and they had a lot of ambition and that was pretty much it. So th- they did a lot with it, but we were using similar gear i i had like a tascam four track i think they they had like a tascam eight track so they were four better four better than me but they were a full band i was one guy what really baffled me was that magna carta put out the album just as a demo like i don't know that many labels that would do that it just it just really baffled me i guess they were just wanting to get it out i mean i knowing knowing you guys and how you're kind of perfectionists and you know, it's it just surprised me that uh, they allowed that to happen. I think it was all about timing. Magna Carta had just put together that label with Pete Morticelli and Mike Varney kind of teaming up. And they had the band Magellan. Magna Carta, I'm speculating here, is they probably signed a, um, a four-release deal, licensing out to uh, R.E.D. Sony was one of them and uh, a few other companies and they had to have you know you're on a time time frame you have to have four albums turned in by such and such a date to to keep things moving forward so when we came along they were like all right what do you have and they were like sounds good enough yeah i think it's really important for people to understand that history because i was reading a lot of reviews on prog archives and everybody was commenting on the production 
of that album. You get a drum machine and no equipment, but I'll tell you what, for me, it feels weird for me to say it, you know, because I don't want to sit here and be on a podcast and talk about how cool my band is, but this was not my band. I wasn't in the band. So I thought, I thought it was great. You know, the magic, the emotion was there. So I, I fell in love with that record and I didn't care that it didn't sound great. You know, I mean, even now, if I, if I happen to put a song on, uh, which is not too often, I, I'm still drawn to the emotion of uh, Mike's voice, the, uh, the writing and uh, the, the playing, you know, so I, I don't care. I think sonics always comes second to emotion. One of the questions that people want to know is, is there any chance that the debut album is going to get re-released? Um, if you're going to like remix it or make a better version of it. I thought it would have been cool to take a couple of those songs and, and do something with them with more modern sounds. But I think I asked that of, of Carl and Brent way back when, and they looked at me like I was crazy. Like, uh, yeah, no, we're moving forward. So it, it was all about moving forward. And I think the only person who was interested in at the time, uh, let's say in that time frame of the, that decade of possibly re putting something out was me. And years later I had, found the master tapes for the song Queen of the City of Ice, which was, I think, one of the only songs where the vocals were done at a different studio. But I took the uh, two-inch tape, which was in terrible shape, and I tried to transfer it over to ADAT tapes, which I did successfully. Uh, and I remember finding it and saying to Carl, you know, I think we should do this. What do you think? And he said, I, he goes, I'm never going to mix that song again. He goes, do whatever you want, but I'm, don't count me in on, on remixing that song. So I did have the tracks for a long time. And, and then years later, I lost them as well. So, but uh, they did exist for a while. Well, you could always uh, re-record it as the, the new version of the band. Don't discount the idea of hearing one of those songs put out within a year. Because Brent and I were talking about that and he started working on one of my favorite tracks from the album. I won't say which, but to hear a new version of that would be cool. So to get back to your initial question, the whole album redone, not likely. One song, 2022 version. Yeah, that, that could happen. And that would be, that might be pretty cool. Very awesome. Well, I'm excited to hear from Brent and from Carl um, about what, you know, what it was that, and inspired them to write the songs that are on that album and some of their funny stories about recording it kind of in a DIY fashion. So should we get to it? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the album first, Jill? Shadow Gallery recorded a seven-track demo and a 59-minute self-titled debut was released by Magna Carta on August 23, 1992. Shadow Gallery was only the second band that Magna Carta signed. The lineup for the album was Mike Baker on vocals, Brett Allman on guitars, Chris Ingalls on keyboards, Carl Cadden James on bass and flute, and a Ulysses HR-16 drum machine they called Ben Timely. Additional people involved in the album were Leanne Himmelwright on backing vocals, Rich Lewis McCorkle as narrator, Ken Sloyer as the monologue voice, and additional percussion done by John Cooney. Cover artwork was done by Sean Lux. 
on the guests. All right, welcome Brent and Carl. Let's talk about this first record. That, that first record was really more of a demo at this stage, wasn't it? Wasn't more of a demo. It was a demo. <laughs> okay. Just, it wasn't call like it, a demo. Let's it call a demo, a demo a demo then. <laughs> With grade A uh, drum programming. <laughs> what was the name of your drummer? Oh, we're going to interview Ben Timely. We're going to interview him later. <laughs> so let's talk about Dance of Fools. Uh, Brent was describing the beginning of that in the intro they wrote. It seems like it transitions into a whole second half. Was that written as a separate piece once the lyrics start? So yes, uh, it, it is kind of a second part. We wrote that thing and uh, and thought, wow, this this will you know hold a, a vocal line pretty good. And of course, Carl did a great job with that. Um, and then we kind of ran out. Once we got to the chorus, and we did that really weird transition after the chorus to the thing. That was, a, that was a whole third piece that we, we just needed something to fit there. Once we had written that piece, um, we had to find a, another way to get back into the, you know, the verse. And, and that was you know, born one of the uh, more interesting little, little transitional sections on the whole record for me. We slowed down a little bit to get back into the main rhythm. And uh, that whole part right there was, was a, a good learning experience for me. Just getting back, just trying to find a way to come out of that interesting little part and to back into the verse and, and make it make sense. I don't know if I'm, I'm not 100% convinced that it does, but. Okay, I've got a question about Darktown for Carl. Was Darktown an actual place? Do you remember what, what inspired that lyrically, that story? Oh, yeah. Darktown was a real place. It's uh, right on the Lehigh River, kind of between Copper and Whitehall. I thought, what a, what a neat name for a song. You know what I remember about Darktown is that, uh, who wrote the, did you write, didn't you write the keyboard part at the beginning? Yeah. Ah, I thought so. That's a cool car, that's a cool part. Talking a little bit about the song Mystified, can, you, can we talk about what that's about or who that's about? Personal thing, a made up story? No, that was about uh, a girl I'd gone out with for quite a while, and uh, she was a bit of a loop job. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> anyway, I had to leave that one behind. Brent, was there like a, a classical influence? Did you and Chris consider that intro as something that you want to go in the kind of Baroque fashion, or what was the, the inspiration behind that? I think Chris came up with that one as one of his things. And, and you know, yeah, he was, you know, he studied organ and all that, classical organ and all that stuff, so I'm sure that found its way in. I liked it because it sounded like Yngwie Malmsteen. Right, it was like a very slow down Yngwie <laughs> uh, pedal point riff. Yeah, so, uh, so Chris brought that in, and uh, I guess he was studying a lot of things like that at the time. Can you talk about Chris a little bit? I'd love to talk about Chris a little bit. He's one of my favorite musicians ever. Yeah, when I met him, uh, I mean, Carl's got better stories than me. When, you know, I, I bonded with that guy like in 10 minutes. And uh, it was great. 
and I couldn't wait to get to to you know piss off my girlfriend so by by not hanging out with her and writing music with him instead. And uh, I, I I don't regret any of it. It's awesome. Uh, we we had a, had a great time writing with that guy. His uh, ability to pick up on stuff was really really quick, and we got to the point where you know I could start an idea and he would finish it. Um, you know the the way I was thinking, and and kind of vice versa. So that, that was those were good times. I, I loved those those times. It was super fun. A lot of it, you know, experimentation with music and like how do I, how can I make this part work with that part and all that, learning how to arrange things. You know, he, he and I had a good time doing that. Carl, do you have any memories of uh, Chris in those early days? Yeah, so, a lot of good ones. One of the very first things we wrote together, I think the first two things we wrote together were Christmas Day and uh, Say Goodbye to the Morning. And his mom had a piano in this little circular room in the, their house in Palmerton. And we would sit in that room and just, he would go through ideas and we'd kind of hone down the structure of a song. And then I'd record him and I'd go off and write little lyric parts and come back and we'd work on another section but he was Brent I have the same experience with him as, as you did he would he was great at like completing a, a musical thought that I would have um, and I, I bonded with him instantly as well it was it was very uh, you know you're a kid you're, you're we were kids and yeah. you know up until then you know, my writing experience had been, you know, with Ron Evans, and, and, and he was like a dark overlord. Um, working with Chris on our own, you know, things were a whole lot lighter. And um, But Chris and I both learned a lot from Ron um, in terms of, like, you need to write with a mood. A, a song should have a mood, an album should have a mood. And Ron was very gifted at writing music that had a mood, like a, a like a strong mood. And Chris was Chris was great at you know doing melodic structure that supported vocal lines. And I think maybe you know it's not just education for him; it was stuff he learned in working with you know living in the same house with Ron. So questions at hand, Brent, for this song, were you pulling in some Metallica influence? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, I really just wanted to write a, a riff in the Locrian mode, because nobody ever writes songs in the Locrian, and that main riff uh, is, is uh, E-Locrian. But uh, yeah, I wanted to do that, and, and I also wanted to have something that sounded, you know, like Big Giant Balls. And uh, that sounded like Big Giant Balls to me. Uh, one of my favorite parts of that song is, is the middle section where it kind of breaks down and it does those big ah backup vocals and even the, the part after it with all those ahs. Do you remember working on that part of the song and what it was like working with Mike on that? I remember, uh, you know, we got to that <clears throat> at, at the end of the, uh, whatever the last the middle chorus was, we go into that big stops and uh, transition into that real pretty piece. And that thus was born one of my favorite vocal lines on the whole record. And uh, <laughs> it just 
super fantastic, but very, very simple, you know, repeating kind of kind of things um, with a little bit of a like, clean guitar solo over the top of it. Fun little part to put in the middle of that it, after, you know, pumping it out, you know, for a few minutes to break the whole thing down into something clean was a fun thing to do. So you're basically still recording everything in this farmhouse, this garage, and doing it all yourself. But I think by the very end of that record, weren't you working a few things at a different studio, maybe vocals or sound effects uh, for like the last song or two? No, we, we did some sound effects and stuff at, at Gary's Lawyer's place, but I think all those vocals were recorded at Carl's uh, old white farmhouse. And by that, I mean it was painted white. <laughs> Thanks for that clarification. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. <laughs> That's important. You know, that is old and white, and that we've covered that really well. What's going on at the solo section at the end of the final hour? It's like everybody's taking a turn to say, all right, now I'm going to kick your ass. Now I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> was, that, was that intentional? Yes, it, it seemed pretty intentional. So when we, I think this was a song that uh, started out, at, you know, with, with Sorcerer, and uh, I remember very clearly, Ron Evans wrote one of the solos in that song, the ending part, right? It was the neck pickup sound too. That was the one that that Ron had originally kind of played around with, and uh, I ended up kind of listening to what he did and did something kind of close to it. I wrote that as a bass solo before, like the song comes in. And I have that bass solo somewhere, and it's pretty cool. Say Goodbye in the Morning, is that, what is that song about? Is it supposed to be a spiritual song? Is that about afterlife? Yeah, it's more about the, you know, bad things happening to humankind on Earth, and those of us that are spiritual you know, get to check out of this world in some capacity, either through the rapture or through death. Queen to the City of Ice. Now, was that pieced together? It's such a long song with so many different parts. Earlier, Brent, you said that you had some of those ideas on guitar developed from when you were a kid. It's just such an undertaking and amazing vocals. What was Mike's reaction to all these nonstop overlapping vocals? What was it like to record that? He was, well, you know, once again, we were just kids. So this was like, a, and maybe I'll step backwards and say, a lot of the work early on was, I don't even think we were intending it to be a song per se. It was more just an experiment in what it was like to just write big vocals and big overlapping vocal parts and but it really came together kind of quick and Mike I think viewed that as a great challenge because if if I'm not mistaken I I sang a bunch of that stuff for him and I would go to him and play it for him so yeah when we were started writing the queen of the city of ice I had a couple of ideas and uh Carl's like, you should develop that. I said, yeah, yeah, I'll try and do that. So I'd come up with a couple more ideas and then I'd bring a couple things that I've written, you know, a couple years ago and put them together. And hey, this uh, this part might work good for some singing. And Carl would write some stuff and then I would write a little bit more. And I think the process took like a maybe a month or something. 
and then we had this big long chunk of a song the hard part was just keeping track of how many bars this part is and how many bars that part is because we had to program all this stuff into an old you know a drum machine in 1991 whatever it was so I'd literally have just like spiral notebooks of just you know this pattern this pattern this many times that kind of stuff so I had to write all that stuff out and then program it and then record it and then and then put the guitars on and such so I think maybe like maybe a month or two and the song was done and then finally uh, you know we added some some more to it eventually um, kind of once once uh, uh, Pete Morticelli from Magna Carta kind of heard the, uh, the very early version of that tune. We added more to it and made it a little heavier. Eventually we put heavy guitars in it because originally there was no heavy distorted guitars or drums are going to be in that song at all. But we got a chance to add it later and uh, I'm glad we did because it, it lifts the song at the right time. Yeah, definitely. Definitely gives it a lift. Well, thank you, Brent and Carl, for answering all these questions. And while we're on the topic of Queen of the City of Ice, we will go to a fan question. Questions and answers. Okay, this is a fan question from Adam Briggs. What inspired the lyrics for the Queen of the City of Ice? (laughs) Well, so... He doesn't remember. No, I totally remember. (laughs) (laughs) The easy answer is Brent was writing some really awesome stuff on guitar and I just wanted some stuff that reminded me of the band Queen. So Queen of the City of Ice is my stab at trying to write something magical like everything on Queen 2. You succeeded. The long answer is... Nailed it. I was just... I remember you talking about the story and we talked about it a bunch and, you know, in between parts that I was writing or whatever and you're like... Oh, what if we do this? And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and and meanwhile, I'm just like, I don't know what the fuck this guy's talking about, but I love it. You know? <laughs> How lucky did I get, Jill? Right? The first thing I write with this guy is that. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, hit it out of the park right away. Well, I knew that I was the that was the minute I knew I I moved to Pennsylvania for a reason other than. That was the only reason to move to Pennsylvania. Just kidding. Well, well, I mean, really, yeah. It's it's, but you know, it was a fate thing or destiny, whatever you want to call it. That's amazing. Yeah, there's some great lyrics on that song, and I think that wraps up this first record. And we'll be looking at what record follows next. Yeah, I'm excited to hear about uh, the next album, Carved in Stone. That will be the next episode that we have, and we'll have Gary telling a whole bunch of stories about how he joined the band and how they recorded that album with, along with Brent Allman. Yeah, there's a lot to discuss with that, uh, from new people, new players, new studio, new uh, preparing for live. Lots of things happened. And yeah, there's some embarrassing, fun, untold stories. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again for Shadow Gallery, The Untold Stories. If you have questions for the band... Feel free to write into us at shadowgallerypodcast at gmail.com and maybe we'll feature one or two of your questions on the next episode. See you next time.